Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast. In this episode, The Cultural Revolution, Frank DeCotter discusses the Chinese Cultural Revolution of 1962-76 with moderator Isabella Jackson. Recorded at the Printworks Dublin Castle on the 24th of September 2016. Welcome everyone and welcome Frank Dakota. I'm very pleased to introduce to you this evening Professor Dakota who comes to us from the University of Hong Kong via Berlin most recently. He's the author of um, we think at least 10 books, possibly more, and this volume which I'll be speaking about uh, this evening, The Cultural Revolution, is the third in um, the People's Trilogy and um, another volume in the series has won the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction, extremely prestigious prize. So we're very honoured to have you with us, Professor Dakota. We will have um, the Professor speak to us for approximately 30 minutes, then I'll ask a few questions and then we'll open it up to questions from the floor. Um, so with no further ado, if, if you would like okay. to begin. Thank you uh, very much. I'm delighted to be here. I've done a few festivals, but they tend to be of the literary type. This is the very first time I attend a festival of history. There should be many more. Delighted to be part of it. We tend to forget um, sometimes that it is not just funding that is somehow short when it comes to celebrating, thinking, talking, reflecting about history, but very basic freedoms. If you look at the People's Republic of China today, one might call it a state of enforced amnesia in the sense that few people are encouraged to reflect openly, never mind publicly, about the decades under Mao. Today I will talk about the Cultural Revolution, which uh, is pretty much 66 to 76. We tend to conflate occasionally very different uh, images about the Cultural Revolution. It turns out that there are at least three very different periods in there. Um, I talk about the Red Years from 66 to 68, then I will talk about the Black Years, when we have the army move in and turn this country into a garrison state from 68 to 71. Then, of course, the army is purged, and I will talk about the last period as the gray years. But there's something else. We can't just start in 1966. I refer to the period of 62 to 66 as the early years. So that's a lot of numbers and a lot of dates, but we are all historians, so I don't have to be ashamed about being so particular about chronology. On the 1st of June 1966, uh, is pretty much the key date when the Cultural Revolution starts, the People's Daily publishes an incendiary editorial entitled Sweep Away All Monsters and Demons. Readers are encouraged to stand up and ferret out all counter-revolutionaries, revisionists, capitalist voters were somehow leading the country back to capitalism. As if this weren't excitement enough, it soon comes to light that four of the leading officials in the party have been placed under arrest for conspiring against Chairman Mao Zedong. One of them is the mayor of Beijing. Under the very nose of the people, this man is alleged to have tried to turn the capital into a citadel of revisionism. Now, not everybody would have understood how exactly these counter-revolutionaries would have 
been able to infiltrate the highest ranks of the party itself. But everybody in 1966 would have realized that the number one representative of modern revisionism was Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader party secretary, who 10 years earlier, in February 1956, had denounced his own erstwhile master, Joseph Stalin, for crimes against humanity and for having launched a cult of personality of extraordinary proportions. I would like to go back briefly to 1956, when Mao himself views de-Stalinization and Khrushchev's secret speech as an attack against himself. After all, Mao had modeled himself on Stalin and thought that he was the Stalin of the People's Republic of China. But he must have thought, how is it possible that Nikita Khrushchev could have single-handedly engineered a complete reversal of fortune in the Soviet Union? How is it that one man could just change everything that Stalin had established over decades? Well, I don't know what he thought, but between 1956 and 66, Mao must have come to the conclusion that there was something to do with culture. In other words, Lenin, in 1917, had swept away the capitalist class confiscated their assets, but capitalist ideas were still everywhere, allowing a few like Khrushchev to subvert and erode the entire system from the bottom, from the top to the bottom. In other words, what Mao believed was that there had to be a second revolution, not just 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, not just 1949 in China, a revolution against the capitalist class but the revolution against capitalist ideas sweep away, destroy feudal, superstitious, capitalist, bourgeois ideas that somehow lead the country back towards capitalism. Mao called it the cultural revolution. But there's something else too. When, in 1966, he starts the cultural revolution, he also uses to get rid of his enemies inside the party. Already in 1956, Mao had good reason to distrust several of his colleagues. Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, use Khrushchev's secret speech of February 1956 to criticize the cult of personality in China and write Mao Zedong thought out of the party constitution. Still, Mao regains the initiative in 1958 and launches a great leap forward by herding hundreds of millions of ordinary people into massive communes called people's communes by transforming every man and every woman in the countryside into a foot soldier and a giant army to be deployed day and night to work, Mao believes that he can catapult his country past the Soviet Union. He can transform the economy overnight 
He can be the one who will lead humanity into a world of plenty for all. But it isn't a great leap forward. In fact, it is a catastrophe on an unprecedented scale as tens of millions of ordinary people are worked, beaten, starved to death. Instead of regaining the initiative and stealing Nikita Khrushchev's thunder with the Great Leap Forward, Mao is the one who has presided over a disaster. In 1962, some 7,000 cadres from all over China assemble in Beijing to discuss the Great Leap Forward and what has happened. There are plenty of rumors circulating in the corridors of power. There are those who allege that Mao is deluded, that he might be dangerous, that he most certainly is innumerate. There must be those who want him to step down and take responsibility for the mass starvation of countless numbers of people. At this point, in January 1962, Mao's star is at its lowest. He must think that there could be a Chinese Khrushchev, Khrushchev denounced Stalin after his death, who will denounce Mao. Might there even be a coup against him? He starts preparing the groundwork for the Cultural Revolution right away in the summer of 1962 with a so-called socialist education campaign. First of all, so-called capitalist practices that appeared at the height of the Great Leap Forward are targeted. But Mao wants more. He wishes to educate youth, young people, heirs to the revolution. He encourages the People's Liberation Army to foster a more martial atmosphere. Lin Biao, head of the army, prints the little red book. Students have to read it. They are schooled in class hatred. In primary schools, some children use air guns to shoot at imaginary enemies. Secondary schools, some of the more advanced students go to military camps over the summer. So after years of indoctrination, when on the 1st of June 1966, the Cultural Revolution starts and people are encouraged to find enemies of the revolution, a lot of these young students have been itching to find a counter-revolutionary for quite some time. So over the summer, in June and July, they start scrutinizing their teachers. They try to discover which ones might be hiding a counter-revolutionary past. Who are the ones who propose bourgeois superstitious ideas? Which ones are still reading literature from before 1949? But a few of them go too far. A few of these students start criticizing leading members of the Communist Party of China. Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi, over the summer have been put in charge of the Cultural Revolution by Mao, who is touring the South, observing everything from a distance. Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi send in work teams, and they arrest some of these students who have gone too far in criticizing the Communist Party. Mao comes back by the end of July, 
instead of supporting his two colleagues, he turns against them, claims that they've been suppressing the student movement and trying to establish a dictatorship. Mao has a battle cry. To rebel is justified. And rebel students do. The very moment that Mao is back in Beijing, some of them start donning very loose unif uniforms, military uniforms, with a red armband. They vow to defend the chairman and carry out the Cultural Revolution. They declare war on the old world. They pretty much attack any sign of the past, tear down shop signs, change street names, vandalize churches, tear down temples, burn books, and not just public property. In Shanghai alone, a quarter of a million households are raided by Red Guards who confiscate anything that smacks of the feudal, superstitious, capitalist, bourgeois past, anything pre-49, ordinary books printed in the 1930s, all the way to antique bronzes, rare skulls, confiscated, burnt. They also attack ordinary people suspected of being counter-revolutionaries, some of them literally beaten to death. But there is an issue. Mao wanted the Red Guards to purge the higher echelons of power. But of course, leading party members have honed their survival skills over decades of political infighting. They're not about to be outflanked by a bunch of screaming self-righteous teenagers. Sometimes these leading officials, for instance, the mayor of Shanghai, will organize his own Red Guards. And then sometimes the Red Guards themselves are divided over who the true capitalist voters or hidden enemies of the revolution really are. So they start fighting each other. Before you know it, factions are battling factions. So in the autumn of 1966, Mao goes further over the summer. He had encouraged teachers to be attacked by the students. Now he unleashes the population at large, encouraging them to criticize party members. It is a social explosion on an unprecedented scale. There's no limit to the number of people who have pent up grievances against the communist system. To start with, all those who in the countryside had to go through starvation with the Great Leap Forward. Workers in the cities living in awful conditions, barely able to feed their own families. And of course, all the victims of previous purges. But the people, quote unquote, somehow failed to sweep away all the enemies lurking inside the ranks of the party. They become divided. They jostle over power. They have different interpretations of what it is Mao has in mind with the Cultural Revolution. So in January 1967, Mao asks the army to intervene and support the true revolutionary left. Of course, military officers themselves are divided. They start allying themselves with very different factions. Before you know it, in parts of China, people fight each other with machine guns 
anti-aircraft artillery, occasionally a few tanks. It is chaos on an enormous scale. Still, Mao may not be in control, but he's in charge. He can change rules at any time. He can rescue a loyal follower or throw a close colleague to the masses. This, this first episode that I refer to as the Red Years pretty much comes to an end in the summer of 1968. 66-68, the Red Years are over as revolutionary party committees are established at every level. They are heavily dominated by the army. From 1968 to 71, soldiers oversee schools, factories, government units. They turn the country into a garrison state. The very first act from the summer of 68 onwards is to send all those young people who took Chairman Mao at his word to the countryside, millions of them banished to the countryside without any help. In some cases, up to half of them live in abandoned caves, sheds, pigsties. Few of them eat properly. In the case of Hubei province alone, thousands of young girls, some of them as young as 14, get raped by local bullies. All of this is done in the name of young people having to be educated by the peasants. This continues all the way till the death of Mao 76. Every year, young people are sent to the countryside, not allowed to ever come back. Something else happens. Special committees are set up by the military. They are there to examine the alleged enemy links of ordinary people and party members alike. The talk is no longer about revisionists or capitalist rotors. It is all about spies, renegades, traitors. In a place like Shanghai, some 170,000 people are harassed in one way or another. Anybody who ever spoke to anybody foreign before 1949 is interrogated. Some 5,000 people are pretty much hounded to their deaths. But the worst place is probably Inner Mongolia. It's a province, just part of the People's Republic, and some 800,000 people are arrested, interrogated, denounced in front of ordinary people in mass meetings. Torture chambers appear across Inner Mongolia. Ears are chopped off. Teeth pulled out with pliers, sometimes eyes gouged from their sockets. It's pretty much the heart of darkness. It's 1968-69. And it looks very much like a genocide. In Inner Mongolia, Mongols only constitute about 10% of the overall population, but they represent 75% of all the victims. After this national, nationwide witch hunt 
There is a campaign against corruption, which in effect is designed to further cow the population. Its aim is to instill fear in as many people as possible. This is the moment where if you or a child inadvertently pokes a hole into a Mao poster or somehow buys an egg on the black market, one could potentially become a criminal. This campaign affects up to one in 50 people. In other words, tens of millions of people. Few of them are sent to the gulag, even fewer executed. But it is enough to make sure that nobody has any loyalty but to the chairman himself. Of course, much as the army took control in 1968, the chairman is suspicious, in particular of Lin Biao, the very man who helped Mao to launch and sustain the Cultural Revolution, Lin Biao being the man behind the printing of the Little Red Book, and the one who was all in favor of a cult of personality. But Lin Biao is the one who could very easily turn the army against the chairman himself. Lin Biao disappears in a mysterious plane crash in September 1971. The army itself falls victim to the Cultural Revolution. It is purged. Soldiers return to their barracks. This is the end of what I call the black years. From 71 until the death of Chairman Mao in 76, we have what I call the gray years. Gray is good. Red was awful, black was horrendous, gray is good. And what happens in a nutshell is that many people in the countryside in particular realize that if the credibility of the party was destroyed during the Great Leap Forward, the very organization of the party is damaged by the Cultural Revolution. There's nobody left. Party members have been criticized and exposed. The army is gone, soldiers back in their barracks. Ordinary people, villagers, seize this opportunity to reconnect with the past in what I call a silent revolution. Millions upon millions of villagers start very quietly claiming back what they think is theirs. They take back the land from the collectors. They take back their tools. They start cultivating their own plots. They start opening black markets. They operate underground factories. They do it very quietly, frequently, with the acceptance and help of local cadres who themselves have had enough of decades of thought reform campaigns. Few people in the countryside, whether they're inside the party or whether they're ordinary villagers, have any faith in the planned economy left by 1971. In some places, the entire planned economy is abandoned. In one place, in Yen'an, hallowed land, 
of the revolution, the place where Mao and his ragtag army of guerrilla fighters holed up in 1942, or during the Second World War. A team of inspectors arrives in 1974, discovers that some villagers do nothing but raise pigs, sell the meat on the black market, use the money to buy corn or grain from the black market to fulfill procurements to the state. It's a silent revolution. In a nutshell, ordinary people are quite literally going back to the days pre-49. They are becoming capitalist again. In some places like Chuansha, just outside of Shanghai, a place which had a thriving tradition of entrepreneurship, before the chairman even dies in 1976, up to 75% of the overall output is industrial in nature. These farmers quietly operate underground factories. They produce what they think will perform best for the market. They sell it on the black market. In 1979, three years after the death of Mao, Deng Xiaoping assumes power. In April, he wishes ordinary people to go back to the people's communes. It's too late too little. Already in 1972, large parts of provinces like Zhejiang, in large parts of Zhejiang, ordinary people had abandoned the collectives. By 1980, up to half of all the land in provinces like Gansu, Guizhou, Anhui is already in the hands of individual households. Deng Xiaoping realizes uh, there's not much he can do about it. What I'm trying to say is that ordinary people are the architects of economic reforms. Deng Xiaoping realizes that he can't go back to the command economy. Ordinary people have been able to wrench basic economic freedoms away from the state. They've been able to replace the dead hand of the command economy with their own ingenuity, their own initiative. There's no way that Deng Xiaoping can force hundreds of millions of people to go back to the old system. He allows it to happen, claims the title of architect of economic reforms, and uses economic growth to rebuild the Communist Party and rebuild the power base of the Communist Party. It comes at a price. Ordinary people also have political aspirations, but the party now lives in fear of ordinary people and represses any expression of a political nature again and again and again. Deng Xiaoping in 1989 commands the army to execute a crackdown on pro-democracy demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. Tanks roll into Beijing. The massacre that follows is a display of brutal power and steely resolve, and it sends a message that pulsates to this very day. And that message is never, ever query the monopoly over power of the one-party state. Thank you.
thank you very much indeed, Frank. It really is a masterful uh, summary of the book, which is in itself um, a fantastic read. I, I really recommend it very highly. Um, and it's uh, great to have the um, build-up to the Cultural Revolution, the detail of the different phases of the Cultural Revolution, the picture across the whole of China, um, and then the, the aftermath. Um, so thank you very much indeed. I have a, a few questions I'd like to ask. Um, you mentioned in the book, um, I think that perhaps the, the total toll, um, death toll, uh, would be round about one and a half to two million people. It's difficult to be exact, of course. Um, and yet in China, and um, for those of us who study Chinese history, the Cultural Revolution is seen as um, this, uh, the, the worst of all of the purges when more people were killed in the 1950s in anti-rightist campaigns. So could you explain why the Cultural Revolution has this unique status as being the worst uh, political movement um, of the Maoist period? Absolutely. It's a really important question um, in that, of course, until, until about a decade ago or so, um, few people outside of expert circles even realized that literally tens of millions of ordinary people were starved, beaten to death during the Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 62. It was all about the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and, and as you say uh, very rightly, um, if you actually just look at numbers, um, the overall number of victims killed, people hounded to their deaths over a decade is probably no higher than two million. So the key here, is to really understand that the Cultural Revolution is not about death. That was really the early 1950s. Um, and it's not about starvation either. That really is the great leap forward. Um, the Cultural Revolution is about trauma. It's about loss. It's about loss of faith, loss of trust in human relationships. It's the point where people are compelled at one point or another to denounce their friends, their colleagues, possibly even their own family members. They may not believe in it, but they're forced to do it publicly. This is when people are literally pitted against others. This is when, when hundreds of millions at some point have to make extraordinarily complex decisions um, about who they can trust and who they can't trust. So to me, that's the character that's the key point about the Cultural Revolution. Now, the reason why um, there is so much more about the Cultural Revolution, I think, is a very complex one, um, but, but, but a, a crucial one. First of all, of course, many to this day continue to see in the Cultural Revolution not just an episode uh, and a horrendous one in the history of modern China, but something that is um, somehow... Um, something that is a theoretical contribution to Marxism-Leninism. Mm -hmm. To this very day, there are those who still think that with the Cultural Revolution, Mao had something in mind that was a contribution to the whole body of work of Marxism-Leninism. That there was something in Mao Zedong thought that was original and necessary. That somehow Mao stood up against revisionism and bureaucracy in the Soviet Union and tried to somehow safeguard the true revolution. And there's another reason, namely that most of the victims 
from 1958 to 62, during the Great Leap Forward, were very ordinary people in the countryside. And to this day, they've never really been given a voice. Whereas the victims of the Cultural Revolution uh, not only survived, but frequently uh, were those from the cities, scholars, teachers, party members themselves, needless to say. They had a voice and they could write. And of course, Deng Xiaoping himself encouraged it to some extent. He posed as the one who very much put an end to the trauma of the Cultural Revolution. So he encouraged, at least in the beginning, throughout the 1980s, some writing and thinking about the Cultural Revolution. So there are endless memoirs in Chinese and many in English about the Cultural Revolution, but you'd be very hard pressed to find an account uh, of any individual um, which is very much revolved around the Great Leap Forward, never mind the 1950s. That period seems to have disappeared into the mist of time altogether, erased from memory. And then there is probably a third reason, namely that while just about every party member, at some point during the Cultural Revolution, um, was denounced, or worse, all of them were implicated in the crimes committed by the Communist Party of China during the Great Leap Forward and the early 1950s. All of them. So it's much more convenient for the party to this very day to brush out of history the 1950s, the horrors that were committed then, to barely mention the Great Leap Forward, and then blame the Cultural Revolution squarely on Mao Zedong himself, or even better, on his wife and the Gang of Four. Mm -hmm. So there's also an element of political conveniency in there. Yes, I apologize for a very long answer. No, it's very interesting. Thank you. Um, one thing that um, I found surprising in your book was the extent to which in the 1960s, before the Cultural Revolution is formally launched, there was uh, pro-Western propaganda in existence, um, uh, pro-Gormindang, the Nationalist Party that still ruled Taiwan in this period, a continuation of, of Confucian teaching and so on, despite all the efforts of um, uh, the Communist Party to suppress all of that. Um, and sometimes we have um, tried to explain the Cultural Revolution in quite simplistic terms, in terms of um, Mao being paranoid. Mm. But maybe he wasn't paranoid. Maybe there was uh, a need, not necessarily what happened. But from the party's perspective, A, how had that been possible with party cadres throughout the country, you know, the, the huge membership of the party? And then um, maybe there was a need from the perspective of the party to, um, to do something about this per, uh, persistence of... Um, threatening ideas from the perspective of the state? I, I think so. Despite all the campaigns of the early 1950s uh, to eliminate pretty much any organization outside of the organization of the party itself, which is to make sure that religion is eliminated except if it becomes uh, authorized by the party itself, to eliminate civil society, to eliminate um, any, anything that might exist outside of the state. Despite that, of course, the moment uh, the party releases the pressure, people go back. And this is particularly true 
after the horror of the Great Leap Forward, when, of course, the very command economy, the very idea that communism and the elimination of private property, private property will lead to plenty of for all is, is so manifestly wrong when so many villagers have to go through mass starvation and, and see people they know die of hunger or occasionally be beaten for not working hard enough. So the credibility of the party is, is already in tatters by 1961-62. So there is a real trend in the countryside to somehow start claiming back land from the collectives and tools. And what I said earlier on about the gray years, the silent revolution from 71 to 76, when ordinary people in the countryside see an opportunity to open up black markets and operate underground factories and go back to you know, a more diversified economy, they already tried that at the height of the Great Leap Forward because there was no other alternative. Mm -hmm. So when Mao says we should crack down on all of this, when Mao says in 62, 63, there are all sorts of counter-revolutionaries in the countryside. There are all sorts of ideas circulating that are capitalist and bourgeois. He's absolutely right. Mm. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. He's not paranoid. And when he thinks that there might be those who would like to get rid of him, he's probably not paranoid either. Mm. <laughs> so, and you need to think about this in the long term. Um, great Leap Forward, 58, 62, 62 to 66. Mao has four years to prepare the ground. He does it very, very carefully. And he's an, he's an expert politician who knows how to set up the stage and how to make sure that all his imaginary or real enemies are toppled. But the key point, if I may continue, I'm, I know I'm a little bit long in my answers, the key point about Mao is that he sees in Stalin a man who was unable to spot Khrushchev during his life lifetime. He was unable to see that Khrushchev would denounce him. And his conclusion is, if he can't do it, I can't do it either. So the best way is not to arrest several, but to make sure that all of them are toppled, and toppled by the people, by others. Pit people against people. Make sure that nobody comes out of this clean. And that's exactly what he does. This year is the 50th anniversary of the launch of the Cultural Revolution. And it was commented that there was little coverage of that in China. So what is, how is the Cultural Revolution understood in China today, both by the party um, and ordinary people in China, both people who remember it, uh, but maybe uh, don't understand the, what was going on exactly at the higher echelons, and the younger generations who may have heard things, uh, what have they heard, what do they understand? It, it's a very difficult question in that, of course, I'm a historian, I work with documents, and to get an understanding of what ordinary people think about the Cultural Revolution today, that be a, a quite difficult sort of um, you know, thing, thing to do. 
of course I speak to other historians when I'm in the archives in China. Of course I speak to, to people when, when I travel. But I think the one mistake one should never make is to think that ordinary people in China really don't care about what happened in the past. That they somehow believe that as long as the economy works well, who cares, let bygones be bygones. If there's any one single lesson um, that is crystal clear from speaking to people in the countryside about the Great Leap Forward or about the Cultural Revolution in the cities is that people want to remember, including young people. I get approached constantly by very young people in the archives who are obviously there for a reason, which is to study the past. And of course, it's a self-selected group. But you can feel this uh, elsewhere, an, an urge to find out more about what happened in the past. But of course, it's, it's not uh, encouraged uh, by the Communist Party of, of China. And in fact, since Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, um, the latest chairman, or Xi Dada, as he's referred to, has made it crystal clear that any attempt to look critically at the history of the party uh, is tantamount to committing the crime of historical nihilism. I have no idea what historical nihilism is, but it sounds suitably threatening. And as a result, of course, over the last couple of years, where I had quite a number of historian colleagues in Shanghai and Beijing who would be publishing about the history of the Communist Party of China, uh, today it's gone very quiet, it's gone underground. You mentioned the archives. Um, I think I counted 12 different archives that you use within China, um, not to mention all of the other sources that you drew upon. Um, did you encounter any difficulties, anything you couldn't access? Um, this is sensitive material, as you've just been describing. So were there any practical problems for you there? Yes, many, but they're all of archives. So the best thing that can happen to you is to encounter a really rough archivist who tells <laughs> you straight, nothing here for you, uh, don't even try, because you don't waste time. You just can get on a train, you go somewhere else, and you try again. Um, but nonetheless, also some extraordinary stories. I remember arriving in uh, the provincial archive of a rather large province about the size of France, although of course most of them are about the size of France. And I approached the lady in charge. Um, the frontline archivists tend to be women who were trained in the army and uh, they are invariably uh, polite and helpful. And when I said that I wanted to work on the 1960s, of course I don't say cultural revolution, I give, a, I give, I give it mm. a sort of uh, you know, framework, economic history, 1960s and 70s. The lady looked at me and said, young man, you should understand that during that period we had something called the cultural revolution. <laughs> so, so of course I was pleased being referred to as a young man, on the other hand, slightly apprehensive because mm. I thought she would tell me there's nothing here for you. And she said, we will do our very best, but you must understand that our collection is not complete. So I said, well, if you just show me whatever you have, I'd be very, very, very grateful. <laughs> and I spent a wonderful two weeks reading on the Cultural Revolution. So it, it really is a matter of persistence, I think. Um, 
It is a country, like all one-party states, um, that has endless rules and regulations. And like all one-party states, it very much depends on the leader on the ground to decide which rules and regulations will be applied. So I was actually quite lucky, uh, despite, um, of course, the climates uh, since 2012 having become so much more difficult. Um, but things are, unfortunately, not getting better. Well, thank you very much indeed, Frank. Thank you for listening to this Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter or visit our website, dublinfestivalofhistory.ie, where you can sign up for our newsletter.